Good morning. Who do we got? Uh, if you have a Bible, <clears throat> we're going to be back in Romans chapter 9, 10 and 11, if you were with us the last week. Uh, I had the honor and privilege of taking us through these three chapters. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, again, I've chosen not to kind of put everything on PowerPoint because I really want you to see context. Uh, and if you go back and read it, you'll kind of remember where you were. But if you put a hand up, someone will bring you a Bible, uh, one that you're even welcome to take home with you, no cost. Um, otherwise, share with someone around you or grab your mobile device or whatever it is that you're looking on. But we're going to be, actually, you can, we're going to start again in Romans chapter 11 at the end of this section. And so here's, let me kind of review a little bit, get you back in the context of what we're looking at. Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. Uh, I, had, I had suggested to you that really what Paul is doing in these three chapters is answering a question that he raised back in Romans chapter 3. And so he's writing to these churches in Rome, and he's, he's really trying to drive home the heart of the gospel. And, and the heart of the gospel is that there's a righteousness that's given from God, imputed to men through faith. And that it has always been that way. From Adam and Eve, throughout all of time, on into the future, that is the gospel. It will continue to be the gospel. And, and so the question that was raised in Romans chapter 3 was this sort of logical question, well, what advantage was there then in being a Jew? What was the point of the law and these sacrifices and circumcision? What was the point of all of that? And has God been unfaithful? I mean, has, has he broken his word and his promises that now he's working sort of primarily among Gentiles? Is, is that, like, what's going on there? Has God been unfaithful as he's broken his word? And, and so I, I had said, really God, or Paul gives an answer, sort of a summary conclusion to all of those questions. Romans chapter 11, verse 25. So I'm going to reread that with you, and then we'll uh, jump into what we're looking at today. Verse 25. Chapter 11, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will turn godliness away from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. And that's what we looked at last week, the gospel. And so has God been unfaithful? Paul's saying no. The gospel has been the same constantly. It has always been God is not interested in you earning your own righteousness because it cannot happen. You will never be perfect. And so God chooses to impute righteousness to people by their faith. It's always been that way. And so God hasn't been unfaithful. He's talking about Israel as a whole, Jews on a whole, are enemies to the gospel. They're still hostile to it. They, uh, in verse chapter 9, they're stumbling over the stumbling block. And so we looked at that last week. Let's continue here, uh, last part of 28. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. And this morning we want to look at that word and that doctrine of election. All right? Now then, we can flip back to chapter 9. We're going to go back to chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. 
And let's start Romans chapter 9, verse 6. It is not as though God's word had failed. There's his answer to that question. Has God's words failed? No. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Now, what's the the driving idea? Again, if you're interested, I think you can go onto the website and listen to the podcast from last week. But in a nutshell, he's really saying uh, just because you are physically circumcised, physically born to Jewish parents, Paul's argument is that didn't make you spiritually Israel or a Jew. Again, because the gospel, the righteousness that comes from God is always through faith. It's never something that you do. It's never a work. It's not because of who your parents are. Uh, We said it's equal to saying or parallel to saying not every person who's sitting in church is a Christian. And so that was his argument there. Now we go on, verse 10. Not only that, but Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand... Not by works, but by him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. So let's pause there, and let's talk. So the doctrine of election. Here's, here's, let me define it for you. Uh, And then, and then my purpose really isn't to try to prove it to you. Um, it, it's really to kind of, I, I think you'll see it, the doctrine is true, but really what I want you to do is take this very difficult idea and that you leave here having worked it into your, your worldview, sort of into your thinking very comfortably, uh, equip you so that you could talk about with someone and ultimately have you uh, praising and rejoicing in who God is. And so that's, that's kind of my purpose this morning. So what is election? The doctrine of election says this. Before the beginning of time, God chose individuals purely out of his own grace and goodwill, out of nothing that they had done for salvation. Let me say it again. Before the very beginning of time, God chose individuals for salvation. Now, I know that's uncomfortable, that probably immediately raises some questions. In fact, that's what Paul addresses. He knows there's going to be questions like, well, isn't God unjust? If you look, he goes down verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? Well, wait a minute. If God chooses people for salvation, then how could he, like, blame somebody who doesn't accept Christ? I mean, if, if he's the one choosing, that means he didn't choose this person. And I would say that's correct. He hardens who he wants to harden, and he has mercy on who he wants to have mercy. 
That is the doctrine of election. Let me, let me show you a couple other verses. Again, I could show you lots of places throughout the Gospels and in the New Testament where this doctrine comes from. I specifically picked out some, and you'll see as we go uh, further why I picked these ones out. So let me show you a couple other verses so you can kind of get an understanding of this doctrine. Since we're there, let's start Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Paul writes, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And so we see some other words, chosen, called, predestined, foreknown in that passage. If you go to your right, let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll look at two more passages. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. And Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. We could go further, but I want you to skip again to your right. See if we find 2 Thessalonians. We're going to read one more passage related to this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, page 1087. That's just a joke. By the way, I'm reading from the the NIV and the, the old NIV, as you can tell by my duct taped Bible. Uh, so anyway, Second Thessalonians 2, verse 13. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, and so those are some passages that talk about this doctrine of election. That God chose us, again, before the creation of the world, purely according to his own purpose and his will. Earlier uh, this week, oftentimes when I I have an opportunity to teach, and and I prepare, and I rehearse, and I get excited about it because uh, God does a work in my heart, um, and so I'm, I'm eager to share it with you. And this week, as I was going through it, I realized I'm not, I hit a point where I realized I'm not excited about this. Um. And so, and so it, it, it came to me for, for two reasons. One, just because I'm really proud, um, and, and that was like sticking in there. Uh, but two, and this kind of ties in with the whole pride thing, I knew I was just scared. Like, this is, this is it. This is going to be the sermon that exposes me as a fraud. That, I mean, I'd like to think you, you think of me as being highly intelligent, but this will be the one where you go, that guy doesn't have a clue. Um, so anyway, it was, it, was a good, it was a good humbling experience for me, and, and so I, I'm able to rest now. I am excited about it, that, that God will use this, even if there's inaccuracy. And I say that because we're talking about a doctrine that's beyond our understanding. Uh, 
And so way, way down in the future, we may look back on it and go, yeah, man, I can't believe that's the way it really is, because you should have heard what Michael Priest said. <laughs> he thought, anyway, um, so, so I, I'm encouraging you to, to study it on your own, to know what I'm presenting this morning is not like the opinion of every Christian who's out there. Uh, and I'm not presenting it as this is it, and uh, you couldn't possibly please God if you somehow disagree with me. And I, and I just want to put that out there right here at the beginning. So let me tell you what I think is going on with election. Because it does raise the question, how is that fair and how is that just for God to choose some and not choose others? And how could the ones who aren't chosen be held accountable for their belief? Here's, here's what I would say to that. There's, there's a mystery in this, in that, in that God is 100% sovereign. And, and I even take probably the most extreme view in that than anyone I've ever met. to saying God is 100% sovereign in every detail, in every facet, in every decision you make. God is 100% sovereign. He is in control. There's, there is, and there's actually great comfort in that. There's never a time when I could do anything outrageously stupid where God says, ah, oh, now what are we going to do? Like, he was supposed to do this, and he didn't. And, right? That never happens because he's 100% sovereign. At the same time, you and I are 100% in control of your choices, your actions, your thoughts. You have complete free will in everything that you do. Now, if you understand what I'm saying, and if you stop to think about it, you should get to a point where you say, that doesn't really work. Because that, that really is the truth of the matter. We, we do accept this, by the way, to give you another analogy. And again, I want you to, to feel comfortable with the doctrine and kind of fit it into your worldview. We, we have this contradictory idea in the deity of Christ. If you understand the doctrine, and by far the majority of Christian belief says... God, Jesus Christ is 100% God, he is fully deity, and at the same time, he's 100% human. Now, people try to reconcile that. Some people sort of picture and go, well, what it is is it's God who is dwelling a human body, and you would be inaccurate. That's, that's actually not the doctrine. It, it really is Jesus in the flesh is 100% God, and at the same time, he's completely, fully, 100% man. Which means somehow, in case you're not confused yet, it means Jesus had 100% omniscience and he was limited in his knowledge. That's what it says that Jesus grew in wisdom and in knowledge. And you should at this point be going, that's not possible. Which is why it's a mystery, which is why we're left going, I don't get it. But that is what the scripture shows, and there's evidence that he is 100% of both. I find, and again, here's my opinion, my thought, my attempt at reconciling it, is to do the same thing with this doctrine. I'm not going to explain it to you. It's impossible that God is 100% sovereign in everything, which means every word I'm speaking right now God had chosen and said, this is what I want you to say and how I want you to say it. Psalm 139. He knows every word that's on our lips, right, that comes out of your mouth. And yet, at the same time, 
I prepared for it. I made the choice on what I was going to say and how I was going to say it. I don't know how those two things worked, but that's how our salvation works. You, of your own free will and volition, chose to seek God, to try to understand the gospel, and then accept Christ as your Savior or to reject Christ as your Savior. And at the same time, you did so because God chose you from before the creation of the world. Let me, let me help you with something. Um, and there's two reasons why I'm going over this, like, non-scriptural thing. There's, there's, in the world of science, we have mysteries like this. Um, and and it, I won't take you very deep into some of this, and I say that because it makes me sound smart, but it's because I don't fully understand it, is the truth. So I can't take you deep into it, even if I wanted to. However, scientists say this. Matter behaves as a wave and as a particle. It's called quantum physics. Now, you may not know what that means, except I'm going to tell you this, it's not possible. It's either a wave or it's a particle. It can't be both. In other words, a wave occupies all space at the same time, and a particle can only be in one place at a time. And they're saying to us, well, we've pretty much proven that matter is both. And believe me, go, go to Wikipedia and check out quantum physics, and you'll see the scientific world doing the same thing, trying to reconcile how is that possible? Let me give you one more example. Are you familiar with the theory of relativity? Here's, here's the theory of relativity in a nutshell. It has to do with the speed of light. So imagine I'm standing on a train platform, and I've got my little trusty radar gun. And I'm going to measure the speed of the train as it goes by. And so the train goes by, and I measure it, just for the sake of simplicity, at 100 miles per hour. Got it? You with me so far? Like, that's why we're praying for the teachers today. <laughs> we, so imagine, imagine that this time I'm going to get on a train, and I'm on a train traveling 100 miles per hour, and I'm going to measure the speed of the train next to me, also traveling 100 miles per hour. Everybody with me? And so I measure it with my radar gun. And anybody know what my radar gun will read? Zero. Very good. Hey, nice job. Zero, because we're moving at the same rate of speed. And so my radar gun doesn't show any kind of movement. It says zero. All right, if you're with me so far, you're going to get this next part. I'm back on the train platform. I'm going to measure the speed of light. So I've got my radar gun, and the speed of light goes by at... This is a test. You're like... Right. 186,000 miles per second. Got it? 186,000 miles per second. All right? Now then, I get back on the train, and the train is going to go 186,000 miles per second, and I'm going to measure the speed of light, and so we're traveling like this. And what does my radar gun say? Ah, that would be logical. But it doesn't. My radar gun reads 186,000 miles per second. Now you should, if you understand what I'm getting across here, you should be going, though that doesn't make sense. And you'd be correct. That makes no sense. It's why Einstein called it the theory of relativity. No matter how fast I'm traveling, I will always measure light going 186,000 miles per hour, per second, excuse me. Always. And we don't understand it. It makes no sense. It's illogical. But it has been shown time and time again, the speed of light always travels at that speed. Now, why am I sharing all that with you besides making you wish the summer were longer? Two things. 
One, you know, if, if God were the, what's the name of that buffet? Golden Corral. You ever go there? Hmm. <laughs> Make it quick now. If God, if, if, if we, if God were the Golden Corral, everything in the Golden, all that food represented all the characteristics and of who God was. Science as a discipline is just like a piece of rice in one of the trays. Are you with me? And, and so you need to understand, God doesn't bow to the laws of science. The laws of science submit to God. God is bigger than science as a discipline. And so there is so much mystery in science. Do not, do not, and I love science. I, I teach English, but I love science. Um, there, there, you know, it gets taught in the high schools, and you watch it on PBS, and they make it sound like we've got everything figured out, which is just as far from the truth as it could be. They, they do not either understand the age of the earth as much as you listen to them, and they go, this was 2.6 billion years ago, and we know. There's mystery in that, too, for the scientists. There's mystery in the speed of light. They do not understand quantum physics. It's beyond them. They're in a dizzy over it. In that little piece of science, they don't get it. So what would we expect if we tried to understand God? There's lots of mystery. I mean, things we're never going to be able to comprehend because he's way bigger than science. Second reason is because of what Paul says, really in answer to this question. Look at verse 19 with me. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? In, in other words, you're not going to get it, but the last thing you want to do is accuse God of being unjust and of being unrighteous. Accept the fact, that's why he adds in here, accept the fact, oh man, you, you tiny piece of dust in the universe, you're not going to get it. So don't, don't talk back to God. Don't try to question and say to him, well, that's not, that's not fair. That's, that can't be right. And so I'm, that's why I'm not a Christian because none of it. Solomon, as far as we know, still probably one of the wisest men, or if not the wisest man to ever live. Ecclesiastes, he said it like this. God is in heaven. Like he fills it all. And you're just this little place on earth. So let your, fir- let your words be few. Got it? Let's not accuse God of being unjust, unrighteous, and say, you know, this is how it should be done. Think the book of Job. That's the whole message of the book of Job, right? Job experiences what he sees and his friend sees as really unjust suffering. I mean, huge suffering beyond what I would ever want to experience. And what are they doing? They're doing the thing that, that people do is they're trying to reconcile it. What does it mean? What is it? God must be wrong, or Job, you must have done something wrong. But in the end, God comes to them and just says, hey, guys, you should shut up. Um, were, you, were you there? And he just takes them through. Were you there when I created the world? Do you understand how lightning strikes? Do you understand this? That's, that's, if you're that person who's thinking, yeah, but that doesn't seem right, or does, 
Can you explain the speed of light? No. Then, then let your words be few and don't accuse God of being unjust or of being unrighteous. He's so much bigger than you can possibly, we can possibly comprehend. And so we're just going to have to accept this mystery. And it's not a bad mystery anyway. Because I know the God that I worship shouldn't fit into a box. And it shouldn't be that I've got my mind totally wrapped around him. Instead, there's, there's great joy and excitement in going, I've got a lot to learn. And God is bigger. He is sovereign. He's in control. Let me um, address one thing, two things with that, actually. Sorry, every time I, I like, went through this through the week i did it in like a different order every time so even i'm like i wonder how it'll be this time um there there is there is one there's um there's a belief that tries to reconcile this this mystery this sort of seeming contradiction in saying romans chapter 8 that god foreknew those that he predestined and and the idea says that god looked sort of through the the hallway of time. He saw that you would believe, and therefore he chose you before the creation of the world. Um, I am not of that opinion. And and I think verse 16 is a good reason why I'm not of that opinion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. That's it. It's his own good pleasure that he chose. There's nothing within me that God foresaw. And by the way, notice it doesn't say that he foresaw. It's the word he foreknew. There meaning he, he came into a relationship with me before the creation of the world. He knew me in the aspect that Adam knew Eve. You know what I mean? Nudge, nudge. Right? He, he intimately got to know me. He foreknow me. That was the idea before I had done anything or would ever do anything. His own good purpose and his good pleasure. And that's really Paul's whole point here. Just as it's written, verse 13, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And you go, why? Go back and read about Jacob and Esau. Why in the world would he choose Jacob? The guy was a slime ball. Do you know Jacob and Esau? They're twins. I'll give you one part of it, but you can read any part of Jacob's life. So Esau, Esau is the hunter. And Esau's out hunting, it says, and I might have the little details down, for days, and he finds no game. He comes back empty-handed and literally starving to death. I mean, he's, he's on his last breath because he hasn't eaten in days. But he comes home, and there's Jacob with cooking a stew. So he's like, oh, Jacob, I'm dying. Let me have some of your stew, man. And Jacob goes, I'll sell you some. What a dirt bag. God foreknew that and said, but I'm choosing Jacob. Now, before we get into sort of the heart of why does God do that and why does he do it through election, because uh, he doesn't have to. God doesn't ever have to do anything. Let me do address one other aspect, um, which is what's often leveled against what's often considered Reformed theology, and I didn't want to get into all that kind of stuff this morning. But the, the accusation is, well, if God chooses, and that's really where you put your focus, then there's no motivation to preach or to evangelize. Um, 
To which all, all I would say to that is, you know, Paul's writing this. Does he strike you as somebody who had no interest in evangelism? Um, and, and we even read here, what is he saying, 9, 1 through, one through 5. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish over the lostness of Israel. I mean, he gets, which is partly why, he gets the, it's 100% God's sovereignty and 100% man's self-will. I think he got it. I think that's how he saw it, which is why he says, hey, let me explain. It's by God's election and it's by God's choice, and I'm heartbroken. He's not left with, no, what are you going to do? God chooses some. He doesn't choose others. I'm heartbroken over the fact that they're not saved. Chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. He gets it. He sees both aspects and both angles, the two sides of this coin. Ultimately, why? What's God's purpose in this? Uh, Which is why I I specifically picked out those three other passages. But you see it here in chapter 9. Let me read it to you. And I, I think it's pretty obvious. But let's go back to verse 16. By the way... We're not going to make it to chapter 11. And so none of you will be whole people. I don't, I don't, um, some of this will, will help you if you go and read chapter 11, and I would encourage you to. And uh, who knows, maybe we'll, we'll get a chance to come back or I'll throw it on Tim. You got chapter 11, buddy. <laughs> chapter 9, verse 16. Let's go back to there. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Do you see it? Do you see his purpose? You may want to shout it out. How would you say it? Why does God do this through election? Why does he choose some and not others? For his glory. You got it. Ephesians said, to the praise of his glory to make my power known, to make my patience known, to make my glory known, to make my wrath known. That's the glory of God. Everything that God is, is his glory. And so this doctrine of election, the fact that God chooses some and doesn't choose other, right now we go, it's a mystery and I don't grasp it. But someday I think we will look back on it and you will go, that was brilliant. I mean, that's, that's the response we have now with, with Christ. The life of Christ, his birth and his life, his death and his resurrection. In the time of Christ, to the Old Testament saints, what a mystery. They were 
baffled by this. How in the world is God going to have a Savior who rescues us but dies? Are you with me? And now we look at it and we go, oh, right. That makes sense. I see it. That's, I never would have thought to do it that way. Wait, you mean the Savior that you were sending into the world is you, God? I didn't, believe me, nobody saw that coming. And so the Jews still stumble over that. God becoming a man and then submitting himself to death. And yet we look at that and we go, that's the glory of God. That revealed his power and his love and his wrath. There's a reason he went to the cross, you know, because there's a penalty for sin. And that was the wrath of God poured about upon his son. His justice, his faithfulness, all the promises that he fulfilled, his patience, his compassion, his holiness. Do you get it? And we look at that and we go, God's awesome. That's amazing. You are brilliant. You know, there's, there's that, that question that some uh, intellectuals like to throw out there and they'll say, could God create a boulder so big that even he couldn't lift it? And, and so here's, here's the answer to that question, I think. Here's the answer to that question. The answer is, could God lift, make a boulder so big that even he couldn't lift it? And the answer is yes. And then he would lift it. And if you're going, no, 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 he can't if he made, no, you don't get God. In your, in your puny little mind, you think they're contradictory. You think that's not possible. And yet God would do it, and you would stand in awe and go, oh, right, you did it. That's how amazing and glorious God is. And that's what this doctrine of election is teaching us. God says, in my purpose, I'm choosing you before the creation of the world, and at the same time, you're going to show self-will, and you will have the option to reject or accept me. And one day, right now, it's like, how can that all be working out? Uh... But you'll get it. We'll look, and you and I and every person, believe it or not, will bow and kneel before him and say, you are sovereign, you are Lord, you're brilliant. I mean, that's amazing the way that you did it. And so I'm going to end with this and invite Paul to come up um, because it's how Paul ended. He writes this whole section, and go with me to Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Romans eleven thirty-three. This is, this is where we end up. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.